some of you didn't go on vacation this week, and uh, you chose to be here with us. I don't know about you. I don't like to go away when it's real crowded. I just soon stay around the house and let them leave, and then when they come back, we'll leave, right? Okay, so anyway, so good to have you here this morning. Uh, I do want to ask you to pray for our teenagers. Uh, they've gone to student life camp there in Daytona, and uh, just pray for them. Uh, I know they, everything's good about getting down there and everything, but just pray that this week will be an eye-opening week, that the Spirit of God will work in their lives. Uh, I know personally as a student pastor that uh, many times when you get teenagers away from the things of the world, away from all the uh, different things that they can get into and isolate them where God can speak to their hearts, many times they hear from God. And so that's our prayer this week for our teenagers. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Can any person or circumstance cause a believer to lose their salvation? Now, let me just say this. Some of you are going to listen to this sermon, and you're going to hear all I've got to say about all this, and you're going to say, I don't know if I totally agree with all that, but by the time I get to the end of the sermon, I think you'll probably agree with where I'm going with this passage this morning. Because there's much debate as to what salvation means, and are we capable of losing that salvation that God has provided for us? The Jews believed in works for salvation, a strict observance of the law. The Catholic Church believes they have the power to revoke a person's salvation. Many Protestants believe in the idea, once saved, always saved. So right there, you have all kinds of views of this whole idea of salvation. And so today, we're continuing the series that I began over two years ago, The Royal Invitation. And uh, if you'll remember, the first probably 12 sermons we began with the whole idea of our guilt before God. We're in the passage now, or in the part of the, the letter to, to the Romans, that is dealing with grace. How many of you understand the guilt of your situation, but how many of you are thankful for the grace of what, that God provides for that situation? And that's where we are when it comes to the book of Romans. This will be our 25th sermon on this book. And so today we're looking at the benefits of salvation. So look at the introduction there on your outline. Everyone is looking for security and benefits. Everybody. Everybody's looking for it. Whether you're the, the new college student who's coming out of college looking for a job or whatever it may be, what, what are we looking for? We're looking for job security. We're looking for, for the whole idea of what, what does the benefits look like? As we get older and we move through our careers and we move through the whole idea of having children and all, well, there's not a whole lot of security with that, is it? But anyway, we, we have all these ideas about life, but the bottom line is I believe everyone whether you're talking about finances, career, anything, we're always looking for security and benefits. For the Christian, a secure future rests in Jesus Christ through the grace he extends to us. Our response to that grace must come through faith. And the Bible clearly states that. So if you will, turn to Romans chapter 8. Many believe that the chapter we'll be looking at today may be one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. I happen to agree that it's probably up there near the top. But Romans chapter 8. Now in the passage we're going to look at this morning, Paul asks five questions that starts the conversation concerning grace and its provisions of God's salvation. The salvation that does bring the security and also the benefits that we're looking for. 
So look on your outline. The benefits, benefits of God's grace, I can always count on God's power. And he's addressing this. So look what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, when you look at this, you could say, what is he referring to here? The first part of verse 31, is he talking about the things he's about to say, or is he talking about the things he's just said? I happen to believe he's talking about the things he's already said in Romans chapter 8. And so if you will, look at verse 1. These are some of the things that he's saying. When he says, what then shall we say to these things? These are these things. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How many of you say that that is a good thing to say? <laughs> we'll take it, all right? If you skip down, you'll see in verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son. Again, he's making reference to the things he's already said. When you go to verse 15, this is a verse we always like. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's a verse of intimacy. You get down to verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Again, he's, he, he's saying these things that are back there, I'm getting ready to build on those things that are back there. These are those things. Verse 28, we know this one. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called whom he called. These he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now we're here to this first question in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What kind of conclusion can we come to based on everything that we've read up to this point in verse 8, in chapter 8? What can we say about these things? Here's what he says. He sums up. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can dare come against us? Who stands a chance to even come against us if God is for us? Now, y'all, that's a very comforting place to be when God is for you. How many of you would agree with that? When God's for you, that's a big deal. And what does that mean? It means one plus God equals a majority. Can I get even more specific? God equals a majority. But when we are on his side, some people say, well, if, we, if God would, was, is on your side, you can do amazing things. And there's truth to that. But the key is us getting on God's side. He's the one that has set the terms of the relationship. And that's what we need to understand as it relates to God in this relationship. So nothing, based on this, nothing should discourage us when we recognize the fact that God is not only with us, but he's also for us. How many of you are grateful for both of those? He's with us. The Bible says that over and over again. And not only is he with us, he's for us. Boy, that's a great promise in God's word. Listen, if God is for me, really, let's think about it. Who cares who else is against me? But you know what we focus on many times? We focus on those who are against us, don't we? We, we lose sleep over that, don't we? 
We, we get to the point where there's someone who's against us and we fret and we fear and we doubt and we, we, go, we get all up in a tizzy when we, realize, when we need to realize that one us plus God is a majority. It's something we shouldn't be afraid of. But here's another thought. There is the enemy who's out there too, right? Would you say he's against you? Yes, he is against you. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But look at 1 John 4, 4. It says, you dear children are from God and overcome them because the one who is in you, this is a good verse, is greater than the one who is where? In the world. Can I tell you who's over the principalities of this world? The Bible says the enemy, Satan himself. Can I tell you who, who's at work in this world? The enemy, Satan himself. Can I tell you who he uses in this world? He uses people who are sold out to his causes to come against us too. And we need to realize there's a big old world out there. And when it comes against us, many times we get frightened. Many times we don't understand. Many times we throw our hands up, we're overwhelmed and discouraged. Yet the Bible says what? God is with us and God is for us. And we need to understand that. When you continue to look at this whole idea, I want you to think of this. What is in your life that is overwhelming you? Right now, what is in your life that is just overwhelming? Is it a financial stress? Been there. I think most of us in this room, at some time in our life, we've been there. We, we've, we've been a part of that. How about a physical problem? Is it, is it some news that you've dealt with or some limitations that you're dealing with right now that you've never had to deal with before or some kind of thing you've heard that has terrified you about your physical issues? What is it? We all seem to have these things. How about somebody at work or someone that, you're, you're, that you appear that's against you and, and all these things, it's almost like they're trying to sabotage your life sometimes, you think. Or maybe it's this relationship that... You're so sorrowful has gone wrong and your heart breaks over that broken relationship. What is overwhelming you? God's power, listen to this, is part of God's grace. Grace means that I can always count on God's power and with it, nothing should ever be able to overwhelm me. Nothing. Why? God is with me. And God is for me. Nothing can devastate my life when I put it in the hands of the Lord. We do have people who are against us. The Bible says the enemy is against us. Listen to this. He wants to attack us. He wants to get us down. And his goal would be to destroy us. How many of you know that? You need to know that. The same verse in John 10, 10, that says that, that Jesus overcame, that we may have life and have it more abundantly. That same verse tells us the enemy is there to destroy us. That's his goal. What can he destroy? Well, he can drag us down and hold us under with bitterness. He can drag us down and discourage us. He can drag us down in so many different ways. He can bring fear into our lives many times. And we sang about that. We don't have to fall into the bondage of fear any longer. God is with us. God is for us. Nothing can come into your life apart from God's permissive will allowing that to come into your life. You see, the Christian never needs to be intimidated. Again, if God is for us, 
who can be against us? And then you begin to pull out verses. How many of you have those verses that you write down sometimes or you memorize just to kind of help get you through something? You ever had those? I guarantee you this is one that you've always trusted in if you do that. I can do all things through Christ who what? Who strengthens me. Who gives me the power to overcome those things that come into our lives. Many of us, that's a simple one, this one. And, and maybe you're sitting there and that, you're, you're literally taking that verse and you're chanting it. And just saying, Lord, just help me. We've all been there. Grace is the fact that I can always count on God's power. Secondly, the benefit of God's grace. I can always count on God's provision. His provision, look at verse uh, 32. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, when you read this, some of you could be sitting here today and you could be saying, well, now, wait a second now. I've been praying about something for a very long time. There is something that in my life that I want. I want something rectified. I want something taken out of my life. I want something added into my life. I've asked until I'm blue in the face, and I'm not so sure about a verse like this. How many of you have ever been there? Something you prayed for for years and years and years, and you were just, oh, just please give me something. Have you ever been there? I guarantee you, all of us have been there. And it's that thing that seems to be a mystery. And part of the mystery is we don't know what God's doing. And we sit there and we wonder and, and we get all antsy and we become overwhelmed. But I want you to look at this verse in this way. He who did not spare his own son. What, what, what cost us the grace that we've received? The torture and death of God's son. The, 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 the worst thing imaginable a person could ever deal with, especially a holy God who's never sinned, who's never been a part of sin, all of a sudden that sin is placed on him. Would you say that would be pretty horrifying? And then not only that, that sin that's placed on him is judged by God himself that's placed on him. And all of a sudden you wonder, and then you start understanding Christ died for our sins. We've known that since we were just little children. Oh, he was risen on the third day. But do you understand what that death was really all about? It was him taking the penalty of your sin. And God basically said, listen, I'm putting everything on him. Everything. Therefore, and I'm not trying to make light of what you're dealing with or what you're going through. But sometimes some of our stuff can be kind of petty compared to what we're looking at and what he's just raised here. His own son. He didn't spare his son's life. He didn't spare. There weren't any shortcuts associated to what Jesus had to go through. Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? You know what? Jesus was dealing with it as a man. He was dealing with it physically. He was dealing with it emotionally. And he's basically, is there any other way this can happen? How many of you say that would be pretty horrifying if the God-man says, let's don't do it this way. Well, that's what was going on right there. And then he said this, not my will, but your will. Not your will, but my will. And the whole thing revolves around what God is up to. Let's look at this verse this way. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up 
for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, what is it? where are these things that he wants to give us? Things needed to have victory in this life. That's what he's talking about. Because when you look at what Jesus did, he declared victory over sin. He declared victory over death. And those are the two biggies, by the way. And now he's saying, I'm going to give you these things where you can walk in this life because all this is in the context of victory. But with victory, can there be suffering? Yes. With victory, can there be persecution? Yes. With victory, can there be heartache and hardship? Yes, those things can happen. And he's outlining this. This whole, this whole um, chapter seems to be looking at this. So when God saved you, listen, you received the full benefits of salvation. Many people say about this verse, this verse in verse, the first part of verse 31. How do we know that God is for us? Verse 32 tells us how we know God is for us. The illustration was that he sent his son he paid the ultimate sacrifice by sending the son to die on our behalf. When he saved you, listen, he solved your biggest problem. The biggest problem that you had is that you were sinful and unholy before a holy God. And his requirement demanded that that sin be taken care of before you could be in right relationship with him. And he sent his son to bring us into a right relationship with him and his son willingly took the job psalm 37 4 getting back to this idea of what about those things i want in life he says delight yourself in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart you know how many people read this verse you know how they read it many times here's the way they think they've delighted themselves in the lord god listen I went to church at 9.30 on Sunday. I sang those songs. Some of them I don't even know. Don't know if Christians should even sing that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. I mean, and, and, and some of it, I, I mean, the offering plate was passed. I, gave, I, did, I did exactly the way you said to do it. And, and, and you know something? I left that service and I went and served in a different department in the church or I went on to connect group to learn more about you. And, and God, I, I did all that. And here we go. I mean, I'm delighting myself in you. Now, can that be a part of delighting yourself in him? Yeah, we're, we're basically saying, listen, if you want all God has for you, come worship him. Come hear about him. Come, come to know him more, more intimately. Serve him. Yeah, those are all part of it. But it's not just that. How do you delight yourself in someone? You spend time with them. You get to know them. You, you cry out to them. It becomes very personal to you, that relationship, when you delight yourself in that person and them and you. And it's one of those things of intimacy. He said, when you get there, when you've arrived there, and it's more than just showing up at church, it's more than plea bargaining with me, it's when we have a relationship that both of us can delight in. Can I ask you a question? Do you have a relationship with the Lord? Listen, that he delights in you as much as you delight in him or think you delight in him? I mean, I mean look, look he, he provided the whole basis for the relationship. But are you delighting in him? Is he delighting in you? 
We read about the nation of Israel. How many of you have ever studied the nation of Israel? You go back and study the nation of Israel, and there were times where God, (laughs) doesn't appear to be many times, where he delighted in his people. But there were more times when they didn't return to the light. (laughs) They were so backwards, so far away. And yet, what did they do? They did what we do many times. They cried out, God, save us. God, give us this. God was providing, and they wanted something different. God, we want something a little different. I mean, and the list goes on and on and on. And that that doesn't define a relationship in which both are delighting themselves in the relationship. When I delight myself in the relationship with the Lord, guess what? The Bible says I start taking on his mind. I become more and more engrossed in who he is, what he wants, what he desires. That's why it says, think about it, delight yourself in the Lord. If I'm really delighting myself in the Lord, that means I'm putting him first, wanting him to be number one, wanting him to live through me. If I want God's will more than anything else, then my desires are going to be his will. If we, listen, he will give you the desires of your heart. He says he will. But there is the whole delighting part too. Listen to what it says in Psalms 84. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. Now, when he speaks of a son, I believe he's talking about the ultimate of provision, the son. If there's no son, there's, there's nothing. We, we have nothing. There's a provision there, okay? Uh, you, have the, you are provided for. He's a shield. He's a protector. The Lord bestows favor. That's a whole, it's the same word for grace and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk, whose walk is blameless. Blameless. The believer that trusts God lives a life without limitation. God will provide for their needs. Philippians 4, 19, my God shall supply all your needs according to how. If your desire is is great and you pester him long enough, well, he's going to come through. According to his riches and glory by Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus Grace is the fact that I can always count on his provision. Next, benefit of God's grace. I can always count on God's protection. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Listen, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're in that relationship that I've been describing here this morning, then guess what? You are considered God's elect, okay? And then it says, it is God who justifies. It is God who says, You are made right. It is God who says, guess what? You have something special. This is for you. This is, I've made you right before God. I've I've met the conditions on your behalf. Now, who then can charge us or, or accuse us when that's taking place? Many people want to put you down. They criticize you. They accuse you. Maybe for even being a Christian. But who is the chief accuser? The Bible is very clear about who that is. In Revelation 12, 10, look at what happens in heaven here. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of, of Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accused them before our God day by day has been hurled down. His influence is no longer wanted in heaven. You know who he's referring to? 
referring to Satan. He has no influence in heaven anymore. And yet there's that whole thing. He's talking about most Christians have absolutely no idea what's going on in heaven. They don't realize that Satan is continually accusing us or accusing you before the Lord. And the Bible says that that influence has diminished. When did it become diminished? When Christ died on the cross for our sins. When there was no longer an accusation that could be made because we were covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we had, had, had met the conditions of the provision that Jesus has for us. It's like a courtroom scene. Satan, the prosecuting attorney. God the Father is the judge. Jesus is the defense attorney. And the enemy continues to bring accusation after accusation after accusation. And basically the judge who is God is sitting there. And the defense attorney comes and presents his side of the case, which is this. It will never be anything you did. It will always be what he did on your behalf. That's what salvation is all about. And that's what we're seeing here. That's what he's talking about. Benefits of God's grace. I can always count on God's pardon. There's a lot of talk about pardon. Who should be pardoned? Who shouldn't be pardoned? Presidents. I mean, think about this. The president of the United States has the ability to pardon someone. No matter how outrageous the charge, no matter whatever, that's one thing. Pardon that person. No matter what the accusation is, no matter what the crime is, they can be pardoned. That's a lot to give a person, isn't it? But when you look at what God has provided, he, he can pardon us. Listen, listen, verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So, so who's going to bring the, the, the condemning? Who's going to bring all that about? The condemnation. He, he's basically saying it's Christ who, who, who can do it, but he won't because of the provision. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, look at it. Now, therefore, there's now no condemnation to what? To those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are living, if you are a Christian, you are living without condemnation. How many of you just have a hard time getting your mind around that? How many of you know that you're guilty before God? We all are. The Bible declares it. And you proved it with your life. And yet he comes on the scenes and says, I pardon you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you did. You reach out to me in faith. You receive me on the terms that I've set forth. If you come accepting my grace, accepting my mercy, accepting my pardon, none of that will be held against you. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you're thinking, you, you feel like you crossed the line that could never, you could never return from. Listen, if you're sitting in this room and there's something tugging at your heart right now, let me just say it's not too late for you. Because the Bible says that those who hear the word and the Holy Spirit identifies with that word of truth and, and there's a stirring in your soul and a stirring in you right now, guess what? I have to assume that's the work of God in your life trying to say, you know something? No matter what you did, you can be pardoned. You can be pardoned. And that's, the, that's what he's bringing to the table. 
It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect after you receive the pardon. No, we, we probably already proved that this morning, hadn't we? Somebody's probably lost it this morning. Right, maybe it's the next crowd. They have younger kids. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> but it's the whole idea. You, you, you say, I made mistakes, but your judgment, listen, your judgment has already been paid by Jesus Christ. No condemnation. Is that for everybody? No. Verse 8 is clear. To those, for those who are in Christ Jesus. The righteous requirements of the law were fully met through Jesus. Note that there are no condemnations, no uh, commendations to meet. It doesn't say those who promise to be good, there is no condemnation. It doesn't say those who go to the church, who are dunked in the baptismal pool, who say I'm a member of such and such. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. There's no conditions when it comes to all those things. It is simply on the basis of what Jesus did for you. What, what is required of you? The scripture says we are to believe. Listen to this. John 3, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Not condemned. Now, you may be sitting here and saying, I believe in him. I don't even have a, I'm, if you're like me, I don't even have a thought that proceeds, that goes before knowing who Jesus was. I was raised in a Christian home. I was. I mean, there was, I mean, I, I can't remember a thought without Jesus attached to it. How many of you, have, that's many of our stories. But let's face it, the belief he's talking about here and the belief that's spelled out in Scripture, it is belief, but it's the whole idea of trust. It's the whole idea of faith. It's a whole idea of stepping towards him, receiving what he has. The Bible says that is what grace is all about. It is by grace we are saved through faith. When you put, when you put your faith in God's grace, then you experience no condemnation. Grace means I can always count on God's pardon. I want you to think about this. In verse 34, if you're someone who underlines in your Bible, this is a very important thing to underline. It says, who makes intercession for us? That would be a great thing to underline and go back to. Now think about this. Jesus Christ not only provided for you salvation, he prays for you as you are working through your salvation. Okay? He's praying for you as, you, as, you, uh, as things come against you. As those things are around you, he's there. He's making intercession. He's doing that. Listen, listen to this. Even when you make a mistake, he's praying for you. Other places, listen, in the New Testament, it says that Jesus is seated where? At the right hand of God. Scripture teaches that Jesus is our high priest. In the Old Testament, did you realize there were no chairs in the temple? Some people say, well, if you look at the Ark of the Covenant, it's obvious that that's a picture of a throne. And I get that. There's definitely no, no chairs for the priest. Have you ever wondered why? I mean, they describe every other piece of furniture that's in there. And, and there's no description of a chair. The priest never sat down. You know why? Because the work was never finished. They had to continue. The priest was always sacrificing continually for the sins of the people in the Old Testament. It was a constant thing. But when it says that Jesus is seated, what does that mean? 
It's been done. It's been taken care of. Matter of fact, Jesus hanging on the cross. What did he say? It is done. You know what that literally meant? The whole sacrificial system no longer has to happen. It is done. That's the reason most Protestants have a cross. And who's not on the cross? Jesus is not on the cross. There's some Catholic theology. There's some other denominations that are out there that basically says that Jesus, every time we sin, he has to be re-crucified. He has to do all this. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches it's one and done. It was done. Now we get to live out the effects of what was done. And that's why, that's the reason, you know, and I think we need to get our minds around that. He said it is finished. This is the difference between every other religion and Christianity. Other religions are based on what you do, what you do in order to please God. The Christian life is not based on doing. It is based on what's been done. It's the established fact. God has paid the penalty for your sin through Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are sitting here saying, sounds like a pretty good deal. I think I did that back when I was six or seven or eight. But I got a warning coming for you in just a moment, okay? Don't get too excited, okay? Because there's something, you have to be careful when you preach a sermon like this. You have to leave enough room at the end to make sure <laughs> that you say what needs to be said and that we're coming to that. Benefits of God's grace, I can always count on God's presence. Romans 8, look at verse 35. This is the part we just get all giggly about. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now this verse 36 speaks of persecution. It's an expectation to in this world, in this life we will have suffering. Okay, he, he's putting it on the table. He's saying, yeah, there's going to be suffering associated in this world. But let me just tell you, these things, here it is, the three-letter word. My translation says this, yet, yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor debt, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here's what's interesting about chapter 8, and this is why I think it's a great chapter. It begins with no condemnation. And ends with no separation. And in the middle, he talks about what this salvation looks like. It's security and it's benefits. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. I want to have you look at this very quickly. Because of God's grace, I never had to worry about opposition from God. And I'm going back using the same verses. I just want you to see it a different way. Because of God's grace, I never had to worry about accusations from God. God's not bringing the accusations. Unless he's, he's, he's uh, uh, the Holy Spirit's bringing the whole idea that you need to be saved. Uh, here's another one. Because of God's grace, I never had to worry about condemnation from God. You're never, never going to be condemned by God if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Here's another one. Because of God's grace, I never had to worry about separation from God. We just saw that. And then here's the conclusion. God's grace can be summed up by saying, God is for me and with me. How many of you think that's a great thought? It's a great thought. My faith plus God's grace 
equals salvation's security and benefits. Nothing can take it away once it's established. But yet, here's the warning. Here's the warning. I want to, before I get to that, I want to say one thing. I believe in once saved, always saved. Now, can that be very dangerous? Absolutely. Because there's a lot of people out there trusting for salvation in, in something else other than what God has said. And they think if they get that part right, then they just kind of trust in that whole idea of once saved, always saved. It can be a very, very dangerous doctrine. Very dangerous. And the Bible has warnings in it about that. I want you to look at this. The person who professes to know Christ as their Savior and trusts they have salvation, yet lives comfortably in their sin and or celebrates their sin, has not lost their salvation, they've never had salvation. Let me tell you this about what I know about my salvation. By the matter of fact, the Bible says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It, it means to look at it closely. You be, it means you better get this right when it comes to your salvation. You better understand the biblical means of salvation. The biblical means of salvation is Jesus died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin. He rose from the dead to seal the deal. And guess what? We receive what he extended, which was the provision of salvation, which included grace. And I'm reaching out to it in faith to enter into a relationship with him that so changes my life in such a way that I turn from those things that are offense to him and turn to him. That's what it is, what repentance is. But guess what? There's been times I've failed miserably as a Christian. Can anyone identify with that? Please raise your hand so I'm not the only one. Okay. Half of you. The rest of you are just sinners and you don't even know it. <clears throat> just the truth. I, I, by the authority of, of the Bible, it says that. <laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Whatever. Let me say this. When I was in the worst of my sin and I attempted to live a life that was contrary to what God placed in me at salvation, I was never comfortable. There was always something gnawing at me. There was always something that kept me feeling unfulfilled. There was always something there that felt disturbing. There was always something there in which I had no peace. There was something there that was contrary to who I was. Because the Bible says when I come to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, one of the benefits is the Spirit of God comes to live within me. The Spirit of God, listen, the one who lives in you is pure, is holy. And when sin enters the equation, when sin enters my life, it is contrary to what's already in there. And as a result, I will never be comfortable in it. I may partake of it. I may find a little bit of, uh, of, of pleasure associated with it. But boy, let me tell you about what I know about it. It's very fleeting. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Spirit of God lives within you, which the Bible says that is one way you know you are saved. That any time you live contrary to God's ways, you will never be comfortable in that. And if you are, you're not saved. You never had a relationship. 
If you're out there tell, asking people to celebrate your sin and to get out there and, and, and to live contrary to God's word and the, the spirit of God is there, he will say, absolutely not. And you, you're making a mockery out of everything. And guess what? I don't believe you. I don't, you say, well, who are you to judge? I'm pulling everything I know about salvation and putting it out there in front of you right now. You won't be comfortable in it. And you definitely won't go out and celebrate it. That's not a part of the, what's offered. The Bible says in Matthew 7, 21, more, more of the most horrifying scriptures in the Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who has the right wording, not everyone who has the right intentions shall enter the kingdom of God or heaven. But he who what? Does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Who lives accordingly. Not perfectly, but accordingly. Listen, I can live accordingly to the standards of God's word and his truth. And yet, I, can, I, I mean, I'm there, but yeah, I can live outside of that. But based on what I'm feeling, the misery, the uncomfortableness, the, the fact I can't celebrate it, guarantees me and shows me that I'm not where I should be. And therefore, because of my misery over here, I'm still living according to truth. Because of my misery, not because of my perfection, but because of my response to it. Please tell me that makes sense to you. That is the key. Here's another one, John 14. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, hey, if you love me, if you keep everything perfectly, if you become a sinless perfection of a person, you're in. Doesn't say that. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, listen, you will always be moving towards my commandments. And when you're not, there will be a desire to want to once again, to be right, to have the benefits of salvation, to have the security of salvation. He goes on, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you a, another helper. Hey, I got to get out of here. Holy Spirit's going to come that he may abide in you. How long? Forever. Your life will change as you know it. Your life will totally change. The spirit of truth, look, he may bow with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world, world cannot receive because it's contrary, because it neither sees him nor knows him. There's no intimacy. That's the reason we shouldn't be surprised when the world's attacking Christians. Right now, there's things in the news about these Supreme Court justice people, the, the, the candidates possibly. They're being ridiculed because they have a faith. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It's contrary to what the word of the world is. But you know him. You know him. How do you know him? Holy Spirit, I was here. You know me. We're... For he dwells with you and what? He'll be in you. Here's the application. Have you truly turned to God through Jesus for salvation? Have you? You know what some of those teenagers will experience this week? I guarantee you it'll happen. I've seen it happen every time I ever took teenagers off. They'll get in that moment. The world will be kind of removed away. They'll be focused on what God has to say to their hearts. They'll be there, and all of a sudden, they're going to realize, some of them are going to realize they've never truly turned to God. Maybe they followed a friend. 
Maybe they, maybe they thought that's what mom and dad want. But all of a sudden, it's like the Holy Spirit of God is going to meet with them next week. I'm counting on that. I'm praying for that to take place. And all of a sudden, lights come on, and they're saying, wow. Here's a, here's a better question. What is the evidence that you have salvation? If you don't see evidence, there's no salvation. The Bible says, listen, when the Holy Spirit, God comes to live within you, your perspective is radically changed. Doesn't mean you're perfect. But boy, when you do those imperfections, it'll feel different than you've ever felt before. It will. It'll happen. So I want to invite you to stand to your feet if we will. Would your heads bow and your eyes closed? Wesley's going to come and play softly. I'm going to be here at the front. I don't know what God's doing in your life right now, but I couldn't be any clearer as it relates to what salvation is all about this morning. And I want to invite you, if you've never trusted in him, if there's no evidence, if there's, if whatever it may be, if you need Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life, to receive him as Savior, we're here to help you with that this morning. Maybe this is the church home God's called you to be a part of. I don't know what he's doing in your life. Maybe you're just so concerned and consumed with someone that you know. And maybe they are, say they're a Christian, they're far from it. And it appears they're pretty comfortable in that sin. It appears they're celebrating it. And you know, based on a message like this and what you read in God's word, it's contrary. It's contrary. Maybe it's breaking your heart. Maybe you just want to lift them up this morning. God can work in their life. Whatever it is, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, myself and Gary be here at the front. Father, we just pray that you have your way in these, in these last moments. In Jesus' name, amen. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you come?